You are listening to the Visualizing War podcast. In each episode, we talk about representations of war in art, text, film, and music. With new guests each time, we look at how people have described or imagined war in different periods and places. And we discuss the impact which war stories have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Alice Koenig. And my name is Nicolas Vieta. And we co-direct the Visualizing War project at the University of St. Andrews. Our guest today is Eleanor Head, the director of the Imperial War Museum's Institute. The Imperial War Museum in London was founded during the First World War, and it's now part of a larger group of museums and historic attractions dotted around the UK. So there's the Churchill War Rooms and HMS Belfast in London, the Imperial War Museum at Duxford, and the Imperial War Museum North in Manchester. The Institute was set up just a couple of years ago to reflect on how the various Imperial War Museums have been communicating with the public and explaining historic conflicts up to now. And also the Institute is there to experiment with creative new ways of deepening public understanding of contemporary war and conflict. So we're really looking forward to talking to Ellie about the work of the Institute because it really connects with what the Visualizing War Project is interested in. We're very keen to reflect on historic habits of representing and understanding war, but also on how places like museums use history in reflective and creative ways to help us understand and contextualize conflict in the present. So Ellie, thank you very much for making time to talk to us today and welcome to the Visualizing War podcast. Thank you for having me. So many of our listeners, Ellie, will have visited one of the Imperial War Museums at some point in their lives, but some people won't have done. So I wonder if you can just kick us off by giving us a very quick overview of what the Imperial War Museum London is like, what kind of space it is and what kinds of collections it has. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the Imperial War Museum in London is the original museum branch of the five. Um, we're based in Lambeth, we're very close to Elephant and Castle, so we're slightly away from the kind of melee of, of the main national museums in London. Um, we're in a really interesting building, we're in the old site of the Bethlehem Royal Hospital, which is better known as the Bedlam uh, Psychiatric Hospital, um, and we moved there in 1920, and it's this incredible, uh, sort of very imposing building, which is neoclassical, I think the architect was called James Lewis, uh, and it has this fantastic, great portico entrance and a large atrium inside with various uh, rockets and aeroplanes uh, suspended from the ceiling. Um, and um, it's probably best known, if you think about the Imperial War Museum London building, for its pair of uh, iconic naval cruiser cannons, uh, which, which are parked outside the entrance. Um, in terms of our collections, our remit begins in 1914 and it runs until today. Um, our core collections are from the First World War, the Second World War, the Cold War and also contemporary conflict, which we're ever expanding. Um, and they are really, really varied, I would say, compared to a lot of other museums. So they're everything from tanks and missiles to journals and letters um, to oral histories and historic video footage. And um, they tell the story of the ordinary man and woman's experience of war and conflict, which is what made um, Imperial War Museums incredibly pioneering for its time um, within the National Museum landscape in terms of its collecting. So hopefully that gives you a little overview. Yes, thank you. 
So if I could just come in with a follow-up question there. So um, is that right, Ellie? That that was part of the idea already at the foundation of the museum to bring in sort of the, the full experience of war, including the experience of the, the soldiers on the ground, the, the whole array of different ways in which the war impacted the, the lives in the UK. Yes, absolutely. It was a, a really core reason behind the, the building of the museum in 1915, and as I'm sure you know, you know, and lots of your listeners know that many national museums originate from the private collections of often quite wealthy um, individuals who'd done the grand tour and they collected various things and they brought them back to the UK. So the Imperial War Museum was a kind of living, breathing memorial to everyone's experience of war. And, and the, the idea was to yeah, memorialise what was happening in the First World War, but ultimately to help us learn from our mistakes and ensure that that never happened again. And obviously, sadly, did happen. But yes, it was it was incredibly pioneering for its time. Wow, yeah, that's incredibly interesting. Also, I think it's it's worth stressing this because when you hear the the name Imperial War Museum, um, you might you might initially sort of have a wrong idea of what the museum is all about. Um, so I think it's it's really interesting to hear this uh, really creative and innovative approach that was taken right from the beginning. Uh, speaking of approaches to um, museums and exhibitions, so we were saying um, the Imperial War Museum in London is the is the core, so to speak, or is the first one. But now there are also others around across the UK. So um, I wonder whether you could tell us and our listeners a little bit more about how they work. Are they similar in approach? What kind of exhibitions do they have? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're, they're all incredibly different. Um, Alice, you mentioned the, the list. So we have the Churchill War Rooms um, in Westminster. We have HMS Belfast in London Bridge. We have Duxford, which is in Cambridge, which is a, a effectively a, a massive collection of aircraft hangars. Um, and we have IWM North up in Manchester. So just to, if, if I can zoom in on, on um, Manchester and Duxford as a point of comparison, and they really couldn't be more different. So Duxford um, was originally an RAF airbase, which was in active use during the First World War and the Second World War. And it was the museum's first kind of outlier branch in the 1970s when it was declared um, no longer necessary by the MOD. Um, it's got five giant hangars which house a mixture of um, vintage aircraft and vehicles. So I would say Duxford has far more of a STEM focus than um, somewhere like London. And as well as having all these different aircrafts and hangars, it's home to our archives. So all of our um, absolutely enormous sound, document, video and photograph uh, collections are housed at Duxford because you know we just simply don't have room for them uh, in London and you know I would say if you walk around Duxford it feels in a lot of ways as if it's just been frozen in time it's it's a really um, atmospheric experience by contrast Manchester is a much newer addition to the the group of uh, museums it's a fabulous example of contemporary architecture when it comes to museums. It was designed by Daniel Liebeskind in 2002 and it's based in the Trafford um, sort of media city cultural hub of Manchester, so very buzzy. And in terms of the concept of the actual building itself, it's supposed to be the shape of a globe shattered into three pieces and then put back together again. So they're three different shards um, based around land, air and water, which is different ways that conflicts are, are, are fought. And the way it's designed is deliberately to unsettle visitors as they're walking around. So it's effectively a living piece of sculpture. 
in terms of of the the remit of of Manchester, it's it's similar to London in that it has this kind of chron chronological focus from 1914 to today. But one of its USPs or its unique selling points is what we call the big picture shows. So it's these large scale projections from our photography archive onto the walls of the museum inside. So it's quite cinematographic. So hopefully that gives you a flavour of, of the, the variety within the museum group. Yes, and Ellie, I think, you know, I was very struck by what you said about the first museum, the Imperial War Museum London, being pioneering in its day. But it sounds like that, that pioneering spirit has really continued. Can you tell us a little bit about the Institute so the Institute was created two years ago, um, partly in order to grow the audience, grow the visitor numbers, but for other reasons too. Can you tell us a little bit about why it was created and what your goals are? Yes. Yeah, and you're right. It's the perfect segue because um, we did a piece of research in 2016 into our audiences uh, to try and really understand their attitudes to IWM as an institution and also to war and conflict and how they engage with you know, what can be quite sort of difficult subject matter. Um, and when it came to development audiences, um, it really came across that, that the First World War and the Second World War and our core collections and, and our permanent galleries that just didn't really feel relevant to them. It felt a bit like homework. You know, a lot of them had done them, those subjects for GCSE and just sort of wanted rid uh, once they'd left school and university. Um, so that was very clear, but also, we realized that there was this real appetite to um, get a, for those audiences to get a deeper understanding of contemporary conflict beyond the headlines. And a lot of them complained about information overload from uh, online media. Um, they had concerns about fake news and social media distortion. Um, so they, they wanted to understand contemporary conflict but from, from a source of information that they could trust and they wanted to get the full picture and not just a little uh, soundbite or a little media snapshot. Um, so that uh, inspired, uh, firstly, the, the creation of a new um, strand of programming, which was called Conflict Now in 2017, where we looked at contemporary conflicts um, and, and Yemen and Syria specifically. Um, and then we tried to use our historic collections to contextualize those contemporary conflicts. And, and so that was really the start of this shift um, in focus. And then off the back of that, the Institute was then set up to deepen the public's understanding of war and conflict, but with a specific focus on development audiences, and also with an emphasis on underpinning our activities with independent research. So the Institute effectively umbrellaed what pre-existed in the museum, which was an academic research department, but, but frankly, which didn't have outside academic circles, did not have a huge amount of public awareness, I would say. So the Institute really kind of sh shone a spotlight on the amazing work that the academic research department was already doing, but then also um, reframed it in this quite contemporary zeitgeist in an innovative um, way. Um, so so that, that was the sort of rationale behind setting up the Institute and the, the focus on academic research. And we wanted the Institute not only to focus on um, war and conflict subjects, 
subject matter, but also to focus on museum practice and really pushing the boundaries when it came to public engagement. Um, so the idea was that the Institute could act as a sort of incubator, we do trial ideas before they're rolled out across um, a bigger organisation. So, so that was that was us, that was, we were going to be this kind of guinea pig space, which was very exciting a prospect for me at the time when I joined the museum. And in order to inspire unusual and unexpected ways of doing this and, and trialing these new ideas, uh, we built um, what we call an IWM Institute Associates Network, uh, which was effectively a group of 40 to 50 experts in their field, completely cross-sector, and people that you would never imagine the Imperial War Museum would necessarily have as part of a network. So we had news nights, animator in residence. Uh, we had um, theatre directors from Manchester. We had digital journalists, infographic designers, as well as more traditional academics focusing on the First World War and the Second World War, on empire. And the idea was that the thing they had in common was this unique ability to capture the public's imagination on complex subject matter. And to be honest, that didn't even have to be war and conflict. That could just be something that, that was dense and academic, and they had that ability to just untangle it and storytell around it and, and make it accessible to the general public. So I think that's probably been one of the most successful components of the Institute since we launched. And you know, I, I find the associates inspiring on a daily basis. So it sounds like this is an excellent example of how the museum and research can work together to sort of make the most of the potential of, of both. And it sounds like the, the, the institute, which started as sort of a nodal point, uh, has now become its own research institute in a way. So I wonder whether we could talk a bit more um, about those research projects. Um, in particular, um, one of the things that comes out of something that you were saying um, earlier, this question of the information overload, but also the question of reliability of information. And they're both connected. So there's an opportunity here to use this kind of synergy of museum and research to really create a bit of counterweight against the lack of reliability that we often see, especially when it comes to war, to conflict, which is a topic that's easily instrumentalized by, uh, by, by different groups. How do you uh, tackle this question of reliability, in particular museums as a reliable source of information, and then also then leading into what other research projects uh, are going on at the Institute at the moment? Yes, that's, a, that's a, a good question and a big question. As you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, the, the, for me, the three words that really stand out are trust, space and pace so when it comes to you know the work the institute is doing so the fact what we want to do is we want to engender trust in the people who are um looking at what we're doing taking part in research projects consuming our live events program and our digital program and academic research is an absolutely um integral way that we do that and and as you say there is so much distrust at the moment of, of information sources because of algorithms, because of technology and because of fake news. So if we are able to present ourselves as a uh, independent research organization working with prestigious universities such as St Andrews on research projects that then can underpin the broader work that the museum is doing, I think that is absolutely key. And in terms of you know museums as spaces, 
to, to consume that information and to, to be able to feel relaxed and to feel that sense of trust. I think museum buildings have always been quite contemplative spaces where we ask more questions than give answers. And we really encourage our visitors to make up their own minds in their own time. Um, so in terms of pace, the way you would consume information about contemporary war and conflict would be at speed on social media, swiping, getting constant updates from BBC News 24. And the joy of a museum is, it's a, although it's immersive and it's cutting edge, it is slightly more static and that gives you time and space and, and a kind of slower pace to be able to make up your own minds. Also, you know, on the subject of trust and, and bias and, and, you know, something that does come across in social media and online information, I'm definitely not saying museums are free from bias. So that is impossible. But I would say museum bias tends to be more of an issue of subjective perspectives, which are often a product of their time, rather than algorithms and technology, which can really funnel public opinion and behaviour. We try and interrogate historical perspectives to ensure that we're reflective of the multicultural society we live in today or of our audience's opinions. Um, so hopefully that kind of answers the first part of the question. And in terms of the research projects we've got going on at the moment, again, very varied, but I think really plugging into the zeitgeist and, you know, they often have contemporary focuses, but they're, they're kind of anchored in, in history. So some examples of projects we've got on the go currently are um, the semantics of empire uh, and their application to photography cataloging, um, which you know, applies across the board in terms of the way that we catalog and we label our collections. Uh, and, and, and that then therefore impacts on the way that we search things. It impacts on what results are thrown up. It therefore impacts on our understandings of our collections. So that, there's that kind of ripple effect, but it all hinges on the data, basically, the kind of historic data. We're doing a project about sexual violence as a tool of warfare, which is something we think is incredibly important. And we, we're aspiring to do a future season on that. Um, it's a very sort of difficult topic to tackle, but one that would be very pioneering if we, we were able to, to exhibit around it in the future. Um, we're looking at social media as the new theatre of war. It has obvious links to you know, global governance, elections, the rise of terrorism, I and mean, it, it's so relevant at the moment. And then a final example is uh, we're doing a deep dive into the work of a conflict photographer called Tim Hetherington, who very sadly passed away in 2011. It had an incredible portfolio of work and was very interested in what he called the mediatization. Uh, of conflict so that kind of disparity between what you see in a photograph or what you see on camera versus the reality of war and conflict and how that can distort our understanding of of what is actually happening on the ground so yeah that that just gives you a little flavor of of what we've got going on but you know all very exciting all very cutting edge and, and all designed to inform our future public programmes. So that the whole point of our academic research strategy is that every research project we do always feeds back into the museum in terms of future plans to, to programme for the public. So as you say, Nicholas, that rather than academic research and public engagement operating in silos on these sort of two 
like two train tracks, there's that constant cross-pollination between the two. That sounds absolutely fascinating. I love the way in which these research projects, just by talking about them, they already prompt me to rethink some of the assumptions that I had about warfare with um, uh, sexual assault, for example. That's, I think that's often presented as a sort of collateral damage of, mm. uh, of warfare. But uh, you know, no, now you're prompting us to think of it as an integral part of, of how, how wars are conducted social media not simply as a way of information or misinformation but also as a means of conducting as a sort of weapon if i understand correctly yes it's part of the of the conflict so these are all really fascinating questions fundamental to what we do with the material that the time we have to look at an exhibit twice or three times being open about the the the, the frameworks within which we're presenting these prompting people actively to consider what's the way in which we are presenting things um, might have done to the material to the presentation of the material all of this is really I think also very close to what we're interested in the project, obviously, but goes to some fundamental aspects of, of how academic work is configured. So, yes, it was great to hear about these things. And Ellie, you mentioned in just, just a few minutes ago, mu museums are not free from bias, but it seems to me that one of the roles of the Institute is actually simply to prompt reflection. You mentioned your semantics of empire project, prompt reflection on the biases, on the contemporary habits of visualising war that we might want to look at again, interrogate, rethink. That's very exciting that the institution as a kind of commentary, as an intervention in museum practice. And I think the other thing that's coming across from what you've been saying, you've mentioned a few times, war is difficult, war is complex. And what's coming across from the work that you are talking about that the Institute does is this sense that one of the things you fight, you're fighting against with this sort of fake news, sound bites and so on, this real need to tell the whole story or at least to amplify lots of different sides of the story. And I wonder if you can dig in a bit more. You said that one of the things you're interested in doing is contextualizing contemporary conflicts through history. So can you say a bit more about that? Give us maybe an example or two of how you're maybe contextualizing the conflict in Yemen or the conflict in Syria through your historic collections. Yes, contextualising contemporary conflicts and issues is absolutely critical to the way that we work and it runs through all of our programming. I would say it allows our either our viewers online or our live visitors to draw points of connection in conflicts throughout history and then in turn understand the relevance today of historical events and then that allows them to empathize with the people who lived through those moments and you're absolutely right the thing we strive to achieve is to get the whole picture and that is a bit of a battle against the way that people traditionally consume information today but it's also about empathy and about connecting on a human level and tackling that desensitization that you know we've talked about quite a lot so a, a good example of the way that we've done this and, and hopefully we'll continue to do this is um we we programmed a virtual festival during lockdown which was called refugee nights which coincided with the opening of our refugees exhibition in london which sadly not many people have had a chance to see because the museum has been closed for so long and that explored the refugee experience from 1914 to today and in our we, we had three episodes um on youtube across a month and in our second episode we programmed a conversation which was chaired by the foreign 
correspondent Christina Lamb between Lord Alf Dubbs, who is um, a former kinder transport child, and he travelled from Czechoslovakia to escape uh, the Nazis during the Second World War. And he was speaking to an amazing girl called Nujin Mustafa, who is a young Syrian refugee, I think she's 21, and she had fled the Assad regime in Syria and made a 3,500 mile journey in a wheelchair to Berlin, uh, which is where she lives now. And what was really striking was that although those two episodes um, took place 60 years apart and, and related to very different conflicts, it was amazing how much they had in common and the similarities in their experiences and the different challenges they had faced and how they'd overcome them. Um, so I think that was a, that kind of juxtaposition through our programming was really key to providing that context and to kind of encourage people to draw those points of connection. Another good example is uh, to mark the 75th anniversary of VE Day last year again in lockdown. I mean, lockdown has blighted so much of the Institute's existence, or I suppose you might say it's also kind of um, helped us as well We've, in terms of our, our digital outreach. But anyway, we, we did a series called Reimagining Victory online, uh, which was in partnership with a humanitarian organisation called Conciliation Resources. And we had various amazing people talking about the concept of victory and winning and how that has changed since the Second World War. And today, if you look at the conflicts going on today, it, it's, far, it's far less binary and finite. It almost doesn't apply the sort of victory or winning in the way that it did apply to the Second World War. Um, and we looked at Afghanistan and Iraq as two really good examples of that, this sort of age of endless wars that just feel like they've been going on forever. Both of those examples took conflicts which are often in the headlines, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and they gave our audiences the opportunity to connect on a more personal and human level with the individuals who'd lived through them, as well as understanding those conflicts in their global historic context. There's so much you're saying here, Ellie, that resonates with the Visualising War project, this idea that storytelling creates empathy and connection, but also what you've been saying, those two fantastic examples you've just given of the way in which history can inform our understanding of the present, and in fact, uh, the present uh, can inform our understanding of history. The Visualising War project is really, really interested in interplay between narratives across time and space. So the power of deep history, you know, ancient history, not just uh, 20th century history and so on, to shape our understanding of conflict in the present day and this idea of reimagining victory. So you, what the first example you gave where the migration stories, the refugee stories had many similarities is a sort of a, a story of continuity. But then with this reimagining victory, it's about using history to explore difference as well. You know, it's really exciting to hear you doing this kind of work. I mean, perhaps now is a good example, actually, to, uh, a good moment to talk about the podcast as well that we're doing, because that really is something that comes up a lot in the Institute's new podcast. So um, we are uh, due to launch a new podcast at the end of May uh, 2021, which is called Conflict of Interest. And that is um, taking seven of the world's most complicated recent conflicts um, and kind of embracing ignorance around them and um, encouraging people to sort of ask the uncomfortable questions and unpacking each of those conflicts in under an hour. So we ask a high profile celebrity and we've had everyone from Carrie Mulligan um, to Rick Edwards to 
Inouye Elams, Jamali Maddox, um, Deborah Francis White from the Guilty Feminist podcast. Uh, and they come into the museum um, and they say, look, this is a conflict I know nothing about. I feel embarrassed, frankly, that I don't know more. Please help me. And we have a conflict expert, and that's anyone from a frontline correspondent to a Chatham House fellow um, to a, a more traditional academic, giving them the kind of nutshell which is difficult because you know you don't want to distort you don't want to trivialize but you want to make accessible and they chat about this conflict as they wander around the museum and they they come across different objects uh, from that particular conflict which really bring it to life and act as a kind of jumping off point and again I think uh, that is a very good example of contextualizing conflicts today and seeing where what their origins are and where they stem from. But if you listen to the series as a whole, which obviously I have done because I've been producing it, it's not out yet, but you know, listeners will be able to, to, to listen to it. The points of connection between those conflicts suddenly become very, very clear in a way that if you if you look into individual conflicts, you just miss that. If you just look at Syria or Afghanistan or Northern Ireland or whatever it might be, you're viewing all of these conflicts in a kind of vacuum. You get a, a level of understanding and you know sometimes it's a more superficial level of understanding. If you view them collectively and, and in relation to each other, suddenly all these themes, you know, the, the big one for me that's really come across is um, Western intervention, foreign intervention, and how attitudes have changed over time and why they've changed and how fingers have been burnt um, in the past, which have then affected decisions to go in or not to go in in future conflicts. So um, I think that's a really nice example of sort of juxtaposition of different conflicts, which you get a deeper understanding of each of them because you view them next to each other. The interplay is key, okay, right? Exactly. And the, yeah. the interplay, incidentally, is also something, obviously, that, that we are very interested in in our project. What happens when we read, when we look at different conflicts, different narratives, different forms of narratives um, it, it, in conjunction with each other? What, what do we get out of there? What more do we get out of this than we would get out of looking at each of them individually? So uh, that really chimes with what we are thinking is a really good way of talking about war. So if I can just stay with this at a moment, it's also something that came out of, of your previous answer for me when you were talking about the different topics, the fate of the people who are affected by war beyond the battlefield. This is also something that uh, chimes with what Alice and I have been doing on the, on the podcast series. It seems to me that there really is a set of questions that's waiting to be asked. There are lots of people who want to ask those questions about war. We were talking to artists like Diana Forster or um, Rana Ibrahim, who also in their art, in their work, address those questions of you know, the, the impact of war on civilians, displacement, how our lives change, what is life like in a, in a, in a constant state of war, which raises the question of when do wars end? Right. And for some people, they never end. It seems to me like there's a there's a big network of, of questions that people are waiting to ask. And it's great to hear that, you know, this this is coming to the forefront now. And it's, it's really changing the, the ways and habits in which we think about and want to talk about war, I think. And what we mean when we say war, this is not just yeah. about the battlefield. It's also about yeah. the battle. It's also about, you know, the uh, but it's also about much, much, much more than that. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think perhaps in the past, war was quite a sort of, not a taboo topic, but perhaps it was viewed by the general public as something that was, you know, the business of governments. And, you know, that's not to say, obviously, there was a huge level of activism around conflicts such as 
Vietnam's a really good example, Iraq. But I, you know, having complained about technology, I do actually think that access to information about international conflict means that that discourse, you know, that that does become part of the public discourse, and that is only a good thing. And people do want to learn more, and they do feel more comfortable asking those questions. So, I do recognise that the the benefits that technology have have brought when it comes to transparency and access to information, but it's just that balance you know, in terms of then how do you engage, how do you understand, what do you do with that knowledge? And I'm really excited about this premise, this sort of the basis of this podcast series that you're producing, which is embracing people's questions, embracing people's sense of, look, I don't really understand what's going on in Yemen. Can you tell me about it? One of the things I love about what the Institute is doing is is using an authoritative voice, the voice of the museum, of the Imperial War Museum, but actually in some ways to sort of disrupt the dominant authoritative voices. So war, as you say, is often a topic that we maybe think that other people tell us about, that you learn in school and you're told, well, this happened, that happened. These are the reasons why you study it. You study it with a kind of certain degree of awe sometimes. And and I think sometimes an assumption that you're not going to fully understand it. And it's quite a one-way process as we are educated about war in schools, we're, maybe this is a past generation, but I don't think I was encouraged to question. I was encouraged to commemorate to and to absorb kind of quite official narratives, authoritative narratives. So I think it's really exciting that the Institute is using its authority as a museum, but it sounds like it's always done this right from the start almost to amplify these different voices and to give people this space to question to explore the depths of their ignorance because we are all deeply ignorant about war. It's such a complex, you know, individual wars, but war in general, it's such a baffling, complex, difficult thing to grapple with in our minds and to understand. And uh, yeah, it's just very exciting that you're giving people that kind of space. Can we talk a bit more about, in fact, the museum space? You've talked a little bit about the fact that one of the roles of the Institute is to experiment with the museum space, to think of kind of more creative ways. And you also mentioned that the pandemic has been a sort of a double-edged sword in that it's obviously stopped people going to the museums, but it's given you an opportunity to to experiment with your digital programming. Perhaps you can say a bit more about that. Yeah. um, Yes. I mean, I grew up I loved museums and they were they always felt like a safe space, although I know safe space is such a loaded term now. But but, you know, if you if you think about that in a sort of literal sense, um, yeah, I can only really answer myself on this, because I feel like if you ask that question to a curator, they'd give you the sort of academic theory behind museum space and its architecture. And but I can tell you how I feel on a personal level. And I'll talk about digital programming as well and about, you know, why do I feel that I can understand on a deeper level when I'm inside a museum and why can I be still and why can I be contemplative and I think you know there is for me personally um it's it's really little things like the drop in temperature when you walk into a museum it's a bit like walking into a church or you know that 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 the sort of acoustics of the museum that kind of echoiness that sort of otherworldly sense where time really seems to stand still and and you know particularly at the moment where everything feels so frenetic and we're all operating at speed all the time then and a museum is is like you know someone's press pause and I think it means you know when you carved out that mental space for yourself you can engage on a deeper deeper level because you're less distracted 
that having been said, something I'm very conscious of is that not everyone feels comfortable in those kinds of environment and museums can often be intimidating and quite unrelatable depending on your background. And I do think that that is one of the biggest challenges for museums when they're striving to bring in a younger, diverse audience, even getting them across the threshold. And that's why, you know, that the Imperial War Museum North and working with super smart contemporary architects who've thought about the psychology of space and how it makes people feel and, and being, you know, welcoming and inclusive. I, I just don't think that could be downplayed. I think that's really important. When it comes to digital programming, which the Institute has spearheaded at the Imperial War Museum in lockdown, um, I think one of the reasons that, that we have been so effective at reaching those kind of younger diverse audiences is because the platforms from which you storytell, whether that's YouTube or Zoom, or like we're on now or Crowdcast, are completely neutral and they're accessible to the majority. So, you know, a museum for me is a safe space. It might not be a safe space for a young kid um, from an Asian community who feels like his stories aren't properly reflected in the museum. But if he tunes into something on YouTube, which is a very democratic space, you know, in some ways, he might feel more comfortable, you know, listening to those stories, having those conversations. So I think, um, you know, there are all sorts of benefits to digital when it comes to being inclusive. And on, on our podcast, one of the things that we're really enjoying is talking to artists, but also theatre makers, dancers and choreographers and so on, about the impact that different forms, different media, different performance spaces, as well as performance types can have on what people take from a war story, how people connect with it, um, whether people see themselves or feel themselves in it, whether people feel distanced or, or involved somehow. So it's, it's really interesting exploration for us coming from our our written word experience to to explore all these different spaces and media yeah it sounds like we're on the same page because that, that's exactly what we're trying to do through the associates network um so to get this kind of wealth of diverse opinion to ask those exactly those questions and i think you know the museum could learn so much from set designers for theater or urban architects or you know anyone who's being innovative and thoughtful about space um, and internal space and, and external sort of architecture and buildings because you know we could put on the most incredible exhibition but you know if we don't display it in the right way in a space that that is right for the people coming in we won't get our point across and people won't engage properly. Following up on that, I, I wonder whether I could circle back just for a moment to another topic that we were discussing briefly before, which I think links with this. And that's that's the question of how sort of looking at different conflicts in conjunction with each other changes our view of individual conflicts, because all of this is really part of one big question of how the, the material, the message of the material, the understanding of the material changes when you contextualize it differently. And you already talked about how our understanding of modern conflicts uh, changes when we bring them into dialogue with past conflicts. I was just wondering whether we could also talk about the reverse process. Uh, it's, it's something we know quite well as classicists from when we look at reception of ancient literature, that often when you then look back at the ancient texts 
through the lenses of the modern texts, you see new things, you get a new approach to the ancient material. And I'm really quite interested in how enlarging the portfolio of the museum, changing the ways in which you present conflicts, all the thinking about communication, about outreach, but also the fact that you're talking so much about these modern conflicts and what you say about these modern conflicts. How has that impacted the way in which the museum um, then presents the previous conflict, how has that kind of evolved and changed through these complex processes of gauging with the material that, that we've been talking about here? I don't think this actually necessarily answers your question, which is how contemporary conflict, you know, prompts you to kind of review and reevaluate historic conflicts. Mm. But I do know, for example, that our curator team are constantly, you know, looking at at modern interpretations of those historic conflicts, which change all the time. That's, I think, something that people don't realise, that just because it's happened in the past doesn't mean the interpretations stop, and particularly things like the Holocaust, you know, parts of the Second World War gallery. So actually, First World War kind of parked because there has been so much contemporary, like, new thought about the Second World War and, and the Holocaust, the museum has uh, been building for the last couple of years, new Second World War and new Holocaust galleries, which are going to open to the public this year in October, which is going to be a really, really big moment for the museum, because I think they've been in situ for at least 20 years. And that's an example of how Imperial War Museum wants to move with the times. You know, we don't want to be this kind of static institution gathering dust. You know, we, we want to stay ahead of the curve when it comes to interpretations of historic conflicts one of the challenges for the institute because we're relatively new you know we've been around for two years we have had this kind of contemporary conflict focus but basically because of covid which has disrupted our exhibition season then the big moment this year will be the opening of the second world war gallery the opening of the holocaust gallery and we're just starting to think now about how do we you know this is a challenge for us um how do we take these historic moments and conflicts and how do we look at them through this kind of contemporary lens and how do we engage that sort of younger diverse audience and so you know at the moment it's all to play for because it's it's a while away and we've got the institute's amazing and that we probably worked for kind of three to six month lead time whereas the museum has a five-year plan so we work quite there's quite a difference in terms of the speeds at which we work which means we can be more agile but something we are quite interested in for the second world war is looking at film and the depiction of the second world war in in film in the last and when I say film, I'm, I don't mean documentary, I mean fictional films in the last kind of 10 to 20 years. And it kind of goes back a bit to that Tim Hetherington mediatization of conflict. And, you know, what is that disparity? Is that actually constructive? Does that mean that people are more interested in learning about those conflicts? Or frankly, is it quite misleading and distorting the truth? Off the back of Refugee Nights being so successful, we, we are considering maybe doing a virtual film festival um, around the Second World War galleries in um, around the autumn. And then with the Holocaust, you know, again, very, very difficult emotive subject matter and historic subject matter. We're in very exciting discussions at the moment with a contemporary art collective who you would never in a million years think would be a partner of the Imperial War Museum. But there is a strong possibility that next year uh, we will be um, opening a kind of immersive installation 
which will help bring those younger audiences in and engage with the Holocaust in a slightly different way. So sorry to be so vague about that, but it, it's early days, but very exciting if it comes off. It's, it's just interesting to hear you thinking about all of this and reflecting on the fact that our habits of understanding, of visualising these historic conflicts don't stand still. I think I saw a colleague of mine at St Andrews um, yesterday reflecting on Twitter about the fact that it's now the same length of time between now and the start of the First World War as it was from the start of the First World War back to the American Civil War. And when you conceptualise it like that, you think, goodness, it feels like relatively recent history, yeah. but of course it isn't. It's a very yeah. long time ago and all of the centenary celebrations and commemorations of the First World War for me added lots of different layers and shook up my habits of visualising it as much as reinforcing some of them. So it's just interesting to hear you reflecting on that and, and, and wrestling with the fact that it's not just that, um, that our habits don't stand still but perhaps they shouldn't stand still, that there's always a new lens, always a new angle in response to what's going on in the modern day. So Ali, you've already given us a bit of a suspenseful idea of at least one major project that's in the works. Talk maybe a little bit more about other projects that the Institute is working on, is developing, uh, that our listeners will be very interested in hearing about. We're very busy. We're very busy this year. I think one of the most useful things that has come out of COVID is that we have really got to grips with digital programming. And now that the museum's opening again, and you know, hopefully we'll you know have people there um you know actually physically at the museum we don't want to give up on the digital we want to keep it going so we're going to um launch a hybrid program over the next year where we have moments at the museum which are in-person um live events debates discussions live podcast recordings um but then we are going to make sure that we build a kind of digital ecosystem around those live moments um, that we can then also put out on uh, digital platforms and, and on social media so that we're getting that kind of uh, live interaction but we're reaching as many people as possible in a kind of digital sphere so you know one example is highly encourage all your listeners to go and see our refugees exhibition before it closes so that's going to be at the end of June um, and it opens again on the 19th of May. And uh, one of the most incredible um, parts of that season is um, we have an installation by the artist Ai Weiwei, uh, which is called A History of Bombs. And it is this huge vinyl with life-size illustrations of all the different weapons and bombs and missiles used in conflicts in the last hundred years. And so we are hoping to put on a live discussion with Ai Weiwei in the museum, bringing different people uh, in to kind of uh, challenge him. And one thing we're thinking of, and again, this is TBC, is exploring the concept of accountability and justice uh, following conflict. And, and, you know, how is that achieved? And is that through art like Ai Weiwei? Is that through a legal system? Is that on a personal le level? Uh, sort of, we might have a sort of psychiatrist or a psychologist on our panel. So that is something we're, we're excited about programming in the summer. And then expanding our research project remit. So we have next year after refugees, our, our next big exhibition season that's opening is about war games and the evolution of gaming in war. So starting, you know, from, from board games like Risk or even chess all the way through to video games today. 
So we're looking into formulating a sort of cutting edge uh, research project that can feed into that season, potentially around drone warfare. And you know, the Institute will do all sorts of live programming and digital programming around that. And we might even create our own game uh, that our visitors can engage with online. So all sorts of different research and public uh, engagement projects in the pipeline, in addition to the one, the podcast I've mentioned, I think digital is going to be a very big focus for us over the next couple of years. That's really exciting to hear. Again, so much of what you're saying resonates with what we're interested in in the Visualising War project, the connection between gaming and other forms of visualising war. Gaming obviously used actually as simulation in training sometimes for soldiers. And yes, the, the point you made about the different power of different kinds of narrative to produce some kind of accountability or to explore concepts of justice as well. I think, Ellie, you've given us a fantastic overview, not just of the Imperial War Museums Institute, but of the Imperial War Museums generally. As you said at the start of the podcast, it was pioneering right from the word go. And what we've heard today is just how incredibly pioneering it is, thanks to the Institute, among other things, and taking us into the post-pandemic future, we hope very much. I know I'm going to enjoy visiting your museums with fresh eyes in future. And as you say, hopefully all sorts of people will be walking through the doors once they open. And absolutely, listeners, do check out the Refugee Nights on the Imperial War Museum's YouTube channel. Do keep an eye out for the podcast, which will launch on the 18th of May. It's called Conf of interest. So yes, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Ellie. We've really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, my pleasure. And and I've enjoyed talking to both of you as well. Thank you for having me. And a big thank you from me as well, Ellie. It's been absolutely fascinating and a great pleasure to discuss all these different things with you. And thank you also our listeners for joining us again. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation with Eleanor Head, the head of the Imperial War Museums Institute, as much as we have. Please do check out the Institute's website to find out more about their work and their YouTube channel to look at some of their digital programming, especially Refugee Nights. And of course, we hope that everyone will have a chance to start visiting the museums in person again soon. Do keep tuning in to the Visualizing War podcast. Next time, we will be talking with Dr. Mike Martin, a former cultural advisor in the British Army and now an academic and author. Mike has written a history of conflict in Afghanistan, focusing particularly on how Western narratives and understandings of the conflict fail to connect with more local stories and realities, leading to huge misunderstandings and some very significant military failures. So we will be asking him about that and also about his book, Why We Fight, which looks at the biological and other impulses that drive us to conflict with each other. So do join us again next time for what promises to be another fascinating podcast. If you'd like to support our project, please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. And if you'd like to join the conversation further, you can follow us on social media. Just search for Visualising War or get in touch directly by emailing us at viswar at standrews.ac.uk. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Zofia Gertin. Thank you for listening.